Hey guys, I'm Vanessa Fuchs and thanks for listening to Branch Out. Now, at the moment, Apple Podcasts has been featuring Branch Out in this special Into the Wilderness category with ABC's dedicated nature program, Off Track. Off Track's presenter, Anne Jones, combines the weird and wonderful sounds of Australian nature with awesome stories of the environment, wildlife, and the people who love them. Sounds like something you might want to hear, right? So to round off this season of Branch Out, get ready to go off track. The off track episode I'm going to play you today actually features a former scientist from the Australian Plant Bank and highlights the ongoing challenges to crack the conservation code for a group of endangered plants called persoonias. You might know them as G-bungs or snotty gobbles, depending which side of Australia you're from. Now, there are a range of crazy natural processes that are required in order for these special seeds to germinate, which could include passing through the gut of an emu. So get ready to go on a little adventure in this off-track episode to find out whether picking the snotty gobble out of emu poo could save them from extinction. We're unable to germinate them at this point. Propagation has also got a very low success rate. That's the main obstacle. There's a lot of limitations and things to take into account when working with endangered species. But I mean, I guess that's the point is science is you've got to take a few risks. To grow this endangered species, you might need tiny gauze gift bags, emu digestive juices and the essence of smoke. I'm Ann Jones and who knew that a bit of gardening could ever be this bizarre? So let's get straight into Off Track today on RN and let me introduce Catherine Catalotti. She's a technical officer with the Australian Plant Bank at the Sydney Botanic Gardens and she's studying a snotty gobble, a nodding G-bung, Persoonia newtons. Persoonia newtons is a bush that gets to about two metres high. It's got quite delicate leaves. It's got a nice lime green colour to it. The stems are red. It's quite wiry and wispy. And then it's got these nice droopy, droopy fruits that, that kind of go purple. Yeah. And what do the flowers look like? They're little and yellow. They have four petals that sort of curve back. They're very similar throughout persoonias. So most persoonias have these little yellow flowers. So G-bungs all have the same flowers. Yeah. This one's special because it's endangered. It's from Western Sydney, so it's from an area that is getting a lot of development and a lot of things are happening there, which is great, but it also means that the environment is becoming fragmented, so we have to keep a special eye on those plants. There's one major population left. What does that mean, major population? Are we talking like a forest of the things? Um, We're talking a reserve of the things, um, which is in the Agnes Banks area. It's really unique, that's why it's been made a reserve because it's probably the best example of the particular community that it's in. If something was to happen to those plants, if there was some sort of disease or a predator or some sort of you know, effect in, in the environment there, like a fire came through and they didn't recover from it properly or something, then the, the plant species would be in a lot of trouble because they haven't really got 
um, backups. No backups. Remembering that Catalotti works for the Australian Plant Bank, which stores seeds and does a whole heap of research into conserving Australian native plant species. But of course, it's of no use having seeds if you don't know how to grow them. We were unable to germinate them at this point and propagation has also got a very, very low success rate. So propagation is where we take a cutting from the plant and then strike it, so give it different hormones that, that mean it can grow some roots and grow on to become another plant. And so we have low, low rates of success for both of those things. So what is to be done? First, collect seeds. Looking through other people's research and other people's experience, it seems that... Uh, it's it's really important for the seeds to be left on the plant for the entirety of, of their developmental phase. In other words, to let them drop off naturally. So I've put these little mesh bags to try and capture the seeds and let them drop naturally to maximise the amount of viability for each of the seeds and sort of standardise them for experimental work. They're literally like little gift bags that you yes. might see in a dollar store or something yes. like it made out of gaudy colours generally, oh, the ones hilarious. that I've seen. Yeah, hideous colours. <laughs> and you literally tie them over the fruit yeah. and you have to wait until that little bag is full of all the seedy goodness. That's right, and then come back and, and recollect in the bags. So it's a way of excluding them from being eaten by animals but I'm also finding that the animals are sucking the fruit off the seed through the bag and then leaving me the seed which is great so they're still getting their food and I'm getting the seed at the end. So that so there's like quite a meaty fruity covering over mm. this seed is there? That's that's right yeah which is which is part of their importance is that they put all this energy into creating this nutritional food in an environment which has quite a scarcity of energy for, for animals. I'm sort of imagining some sort of plum-like thing. Yeah that's yeah. Right, and and I mean they they change shape a little bit for different persoonias, but um so our one that we're looking at today is kind of, it's sort of like a mini 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 mango shape. <laughs> and have you had luck in collecting your seeds? How have you gone? Pretty good actually. I'm I'm pretty impressed because I, oh, I expected a lot. Yeah, I expected it would be a lot harder, but but we're doing pretty well for numbers and. But of course, it's no use having all of this genetic material, these seeds stored in a seed bank somewhere, if you have no idea how to bring them to life, is it? It's just silly. Well, I mean, it's no good having them if we don't know how to bring them to life, and it's also no good having them if we don't know how to store them properly. So there's different ways to store seed. I mean, you need to know how to germinate a seed to know whether or not it's alive. And because we don't know whether or not it's alive, we don't know if our storage techniques are actually conserving them or whether or not that's also degrading their viability and their ability to sort of germinate. So the first step is to be able to germinate them and then also to be able to test our different storage techniques to see which one suits them the best. Think about all of the things that could impact on a seed in the environment – moisture, fire events, chemicals, interactions with fungus, temperatures, physical processes, and exactly which of those things is important to this seed, the seed of the endangered Persunia newtons. The mind boggles at the variables, but Catherine Catalotti says we have some clues in the biology of the seed. There's the fruity exocarp, which is that the fruity bit on the outside, um, and that the plant would bother to put energy into into creating all of that means that uh, you know part of their evolution has been to be eaten by animals. So that's a dispersal mechanism. We know that so far. There's there's research that shows that emus are important for dispersing the persoonias. However, there may also be importance in the digestion of the seed because the next level um, under the fruiting structure is an 
endocarp, which is a hard woody casing. So it's it's almost like having a bone around. So it's, it's a very protective covering and that indicates that it's protecting the seed from some other process, some physical process. So digestion may help for scarifying, for scratching it up. It might coat it in a particular chemical from the chemical environment of the stomach or some sort of microbes from the microbial environment of the stomach. Or it could be some other quite dynamic occurrence in the environment like fire you know there's a lot of seed pods especially in proteaceae which is the family of pasunias um, you see them sort of crack open like the banksia they crack open after a fire there are certain types of really delicate orchids and things like that mm. that need fungus in order to yeah. actually germinate properly and, and grow into yes. their mature form so is there a possibility that it could actually be something in the earth itself that yes. this seed is seeking most definitely it could be because the only way i've managed to do it so far has been to to keep them in a completely sterile environment because they're so susceptible to fungal growth and it just kills the seed straight away so there is a potential for symbiotic fungal relationships that protect them from this fungal growth it's yeah it's, there's a lot of complexities which is why this has been such a problem up until now and why why pasunias have not been included in horticulture and also in restoration The nodding G-bung is in trouble. Not only are there limited specimens and limited space for those plants, but scientists aren't even sure how to germinate or store the seeds. In the current project at the Australian Plant Bank, pasunias of many different types, including our pasunia newtons, the nodding G-bung, are being experimented on to try and find out exactly what are the conditions that these seeds might need to be able to germinate. And that leads us to this place, a paddock full of emus. Penny Henley is from Emu Logic. We're on the edge of the Warren Bungles. We're almost back onto the National Park. We've got one neighbour behind us in the National Park. It's just um, really nice um, basalt country for, and really good for animals. Yeah, you run emus. Uh, we've got about 900, but it is a mixed farming, so we have sheep and cattle as well. Why emus? We've got in emus because it's such a good product. Um, the emu oil, we know it helps people with arthritis and eczema and things like that. So, And we've stuck with it for that reason. And did you have any, any background in, in farming birds? Um, only chooks and ducks. <laughs> so they're like really big chooks and ducks. Eh? Yeah, big chooks. <laughs> Dumb as, and it's it basically the same thing. <laughs> that... that. Emu's trying to pick my pocket. Excuse me, that's very expensive big camera. Um, you said that they were a bit dumb, but they're clearly curious. Oh, they're very curious. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, Feels like he's pinching my bum. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, um, okay, let's just talk about what we can actually see for a start. They're, they've got a different sort of feather than you would expect on a bird. They're not like a sparrow feather, for example. How do you describe them? Because they don't fly to touch it, it's more like um, fur than it is a feather. It's actually a twin feather on one thing, which makes them unique with birds. Uh... So we just got a passing feather. Oh my goodness, they're gorgeous. You know what they look like? They look like moth antenna, fluffy too, but two stalks coming from one base. Yeah, and that's, that's what makes them unique. 
Yeah, so that's good insulation. Okay, yeah. some of them we're getting a beautiful colour yeah. um, of blue, similar to what cassowaries get. Yeah. Um, it, it, and some of them not, so what's the difference? Personality. <laughs> uh, just different birds. Every All the birds, they have their own high hairstyle, they have their own face, so you get to know them because they're all different. So that's incredible, right? Because so, mm. some of them have got mohawks, some of them are furry right up to the top of their head. It, is that a sign of immaturity or anything like that? They will change. So these are only 12 months, 18 months old. Um, they don't really mature till they're three years. Wow. So they've got a bit, a bit more growing to do. Um, yeah, I always say at this age they're more like, you know, a 12, 14-year-old. They're getting mature, but they've got a bit more growing out to do. Most of them will come when you call, but not all of them. <laughs> My name's Anne Jones, this is Off Track on RN and it's started to rain at the emu farm. It's getting dark and we're surrounded by milling birds, tall as a human, taller even, and their behaviour is dazzlingly close at hand. Philip Henley. You see she's, she's pumped her neck up and got her head back and she's just, just parading around showing off to the males. And, and in fact her neck, the air bubble that's inside is bouncing like a bosom I have to say isn't as she's sort of moving it as she's walking along it's quite attention grabbing um, and so it's only the females that make the sound and how do they make that sound? They, they fill that sack up they've got a little hole in their esophagus I suppose at the bottom bottom of their neck there they fill the sack up with air and I suppose it's like like a bagpipes and then they, just, they make the booming noise through the through the sack. They do go quiet at night, except on a moonlit night. Moonlit night, they'll go all night. They'll they'll wander around and boom. But from now on, you know, they'll start drifting off, and they'll get in little groups, and they'll just huddle in little groups and all go to sleep. Yeah. If you didn't know you were walking into an emu paddock, and you looked off into the distance, you actually wouldn't see a lot of them because they do just look like rocks, don't they? They're really good camouflage off in the distance. Yeah, they they do blend in. And um, well, when they're sitting on the eggs too, they'll lay really flat and low to the ground. They do try to hide. And we've even seen they even pick the grass and put the grass on their backs and that sort of thing. They'll, they'll try to cam- camouflage themselves. What sort of enclosure are we in at the moment? We're in the, in the yard. It's a, a holding yard. We just sort of put the emus into pre-loading. And for the purposes of this experiment, why are they in here? Well, so we don't have to go so far to look for their, their droppings, <laughs> so, so they're, they're more contained. So what do you normally feed them? A wheat mix, hay, meat meal, they're omnivores, so they do, they do need uh, meat in their diet. That's really interesting, so love, in, in the wild they'd be taking whatever they could find? Oh absolutely, they love grasshopper plagues because they'll eat the grasshoppers, um, they eat mice. Um, if they come across dead carcass they'll you know even eat the meat off another animal you'll find a, a, a say a bird which has died in the paddock and they've be, you know find some crow feathers and they're basically eating the crow <laughs> but will they eat the carefully collected seeds of pasunia newtons that Catherine catalotti has brought to the farm um, so should we just put them in should we do it It's like it's a heaving mass Mass. of (laughs) emus, (laughs) feathers and funny heads, yep. (laughs) Yeah, so they seem to be kind of 
enjoying it. Last night we did the same and they, they ate all the wheat first because that's kind of what they're used to eating. But then by the time we came back the next day, the the other the seeds had gone as well. So. You've tipped out, what, maybe a thousand seeds in Probably there? about 2,000. Oh my goodness. Yeah. How long did it take you to collect them? Um, well, it's taken, it's taken me probably six months um, just because I've had to go out and put sort of bags up to collect the seed and then go back to collecting the bags so they had to actually drop off the plant naturally before yeah it's taking quite a bit of effort so how selective are their beaks i mean are they would they be able to pick yeah. quite specific things absolutely they'll walk up behind you and take the back of your earring if you're not careful oh my god <laughs> As someone who, you know, makes a living off these animals, these are your livelihood, why get involved in this sort of research? Um, We'd love to be involved with anything which has got to do with endangered species, be it animals or plants. It's it's a really important part to help with the environment, keep it as healthy as possible. Particularly when you come to the plants, it's... uh, you just don't know what plants will be good for future medicines and things like that. It's like the emu oil, it's, you know, uh, it's, it's really good for, for medicine and stuff too and a lot of the plants are no different and it'd be terrible to lose that genetic pool. Have you ever actually seen the plant? No, no, not, not, not that we're aware of. There is a, uh, a similar plant here. I haven't but, seen uh, it either yet. Yeah. Well, we did get to try some seeds. We actually actually did stir one of the seeds and ate and tried it. Well, we put the put the seed part back that ate the fruit off, and they are they are edible. Yeah. So the, what did it taste like? Virtually had very little taste at all. It's um, maybe a little bit like a grape, like a, a a sour grape with not much flavour. We've been watching as they're picking around the seeds to eat the wheat. Is there things that they particularly like that you can lure them in to eating something that they might not take at first first glance? Um, basically, they're grain mix. Yeah, they're used they're, to it. So, that's yeah. what they'll take. So if you yeah. mix it in, yeah, yeah, they'll basically. Eat it, Is it yeah. like mixing pumpkin in with the mashed potato for kids who are yeah. picky? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. What's that like watching that as a scientist? Um, scary and also exciting. Yeah, so there's a few more steps to go before we actually know what the what the result's going to be. But yeah, it's it's a good yeah it's a good start. That's for sure. What was it like actually coming to sort through the poo? What did it look like? How did you find it? Um, and how did you sort it? Okay, so. Um, it was pretty there we go oh we've got an example (laughs) perfect timing right so it's sort of it's quite soft um it's got quite i guess they i guess they're eating the straw off the ground a little bit because it seems to have bits of straw mixed through it's got some whole grains of wheat in it and some fasunia seeds yeah, so it sort of looks like horse manure, I guess, doesn't it? It does look a little bit like <laughs> it, though not, not as large in volume. Can you see any of your seeds in that? Um, can, can I see any of my seeds? Well, possibly not in this one, but I've got... We collected some before that had... There's one. Oh, yeah, so there's a seed. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, so they've digested yeah. a fair bit. Yeah, and there's... So there's a... Of stuff off it because yeah, it's much a, smaller. Yeah, so that's the that's the endocarp, which is what's inside the the fruit the fruiting area, which is the exocarp. Do you think that one pass through an emu might be enough? Well, that's well actually, I just because I'm learning about emus obviously now because it's not my specialty, but apparently they re-eat 
a lot of their food so maybe it needs a few times to go through yeah mm. i'm not sure mm. that's that's another conundrum so many qu- <laughs> so many so many questions yeah. now comes the exciting bit where you have to actually do things to the poo to get the seed out so <laughs> So exciting. Such an exciting <laughs> part of science. But, I mean, it's actually sort of important. What are you actually going to do? Have you got a plan yet about how you're going to process some of these seeds? Yep. So, um, basically, I have we have a, a bunch of very lovely volunteers who are going to assist with just picking the seeds out of the scouts, out of the poo. Um, we're hoping to kind of keep, I don't know, keep them sort of covered in the remnants, so not wash them off or anything like that. And then we'll be sowing them into seed raising trays in a nursery. How long do you think it'll take before we might see some germination? Mm. Well, if I have enough seeds, um, I'll be cracking some of them and not cracking others. The ones that will be cracked would germinate a lot quicker. The ones that uh, remain uncracked will take a lot longer. So the ones that will be cracked will probably take within a month Uh, a couple of weeks, six weeks, something like that. Um, The ones that remain uncracked could take another couple of months um, for them to work through the the physical process of that that casing breaking down a bit. And what will it be that will break through your little soil patches Mm. in hopefully lots of numbers? What will that that actually look like? Um, So they're really interesting as germinants because they have uh, five to seven cotyledons, um, which spread open like a weird palm tree or a little alien so it's a singular shoot with these five or seven little fingers that stick out and then from the center of that will come up the true leaves so, so we'll, we'll write like true true leaves will rise from the center yeah wow <laughs> yep. that's really that sounds quite unusual yeah they're very unusual in that way yeah wow Okay, so hopefully we'll see hundreds of them in the near future, if mm. not thousands, all of them germinating. Millions. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, we joke because, you know, we're dealing with scats and, and yeah. these huge animals that are very characterful. But I mean, how critical is this project for this species? Well, the, the, the main goal is to be able to set up rescue populations, um, to include them in horticulture, and also to be able to include them in restoration projects, um, as well as to be able to store them properly and appropriately so that we have germplasm stored of this species uh, in case, as a safe fall, in case something was to happen. A worst-case scenario, what's that? A uh, worst-case scenario will be back to the drawing board so I guess worst case scenario will be um, taking off these ideas as as ways of making it work Um, excluding these variables as a way of germinating these seeds so finally understanding that the emus are not actually what these seeds require and then we'll be back at the drawing board and looking at um, fire related cues and other ecological cues yeah one of the interesting things about fire cues is that it's not necessarily the heat that's the effective factor. Smoke has a num- like probably over a hundred different compounds in it. Some of which, kerikenolides in particular, have been um, identified as effective for germination of seeds, especially of South African and Australian plants. They use fire as a signal. Um, so what I'll be doing is I have an aqueous solution, a water solution. Basically, I've smoked some water. I've put smoke through water to capture a lot of those compounds in a, in a, in a solution. I'll be imbibing the seeds, which means, you know, um, putting the seeds in that water. There's a number of big changes that come from a fire. So one is increased nutrients in the soil because there's a lot of burnt organic matter, which then 
through through water comes through into the soil and Australia is very poor it's got very poor nutrient soils because we haven't got any volcanoes or any sort of geological activity that's re- rejuvenating the soils so that's a really good opportunity for plants especially when they've got to do a big burst of growing from a seed so they take advantage of that these plants take around seven years to to become sexually mature so they want as big a gap as possible between the next fire um, and and growing from seed so that they can get to that stage create more seed before the next fire and continue on um, as part of their life history then the other aspect is of course um, less competition so there is more space there's less canopy up above they can yeah they can grow up and establish themselves and the environmental variables that could have an impact on seed germination don't stop there we're using gibberellic acid so growth hormones to see if that breaks dormancy we're looking at temperature you know optimal temperatures for germination basic optimal temperatures but then on top of that we're also looking at stratification which is where you expose expose a seed to one one temperature and then take it down to a cold temperature so it feels like it's going through a season um, and then take it back up and then it'll you know uh, that can sometimes break dormancy as well. Wow, so you're essentially creating, you know, sort of like a year, mm, yeah. a year in a short amount of time. In a short amount of time. So you're tricking it. Yeah. You, yeah. Guys, you guys are a bit Tricksters. funny with these seeds, the aren't you? yeah. <laughs> and there's some seeds that, that require a particular difference between the temperatures, so a minimum of 10 degrees, for example. Wow. Or, yeah, so we have to sort of, yeah. <laughs> so many variables. <clears throat> so many variables. So in a way, this project that you're doing at the moment is taking a whole range of stimulus that could be the mm. linchpin to the to this persoonia mm. germinating mm. and basically ticking them off in a scientific way to see what it is that is the key process that needs to happen mm. for germination. So you've got this broad swathe of stuff, temperature, fire water, emus, yeah. the whole the whole shebang, mm. cracking, not cracking. Heat as well, heat shock from, from fires, so, so heat shock. Yeah. yeah, so what do you do with them for the heat shock? Um, basically expose them to a short-term burst of heat so when a fire goes through it'll it'll heat up the soils which have all the seeds in them um so they that might also be a signal um that might also be what what cracks open the endocarp and it might signal germination so do you basically put it in an oven yep basically you put it in an oven (laughs) for a short period of time and that's it so how much have you got riding on this um project (laughs) so much (laughs) what a terrible question (laughs) what have i got riding on it um I mean, do you get, you you know, how, how is it when you're dealing with an endangered species, is it possible to, to keep personally out of it? Um, not really, because you have a particularly, you know, there's, there's a lot of sort of limitations and things to take into account when working with endangered species. You don't want to sort of make more of a problem by, by doing this research than there already is. So, um... So yeah, it makes you it makes you value the fact that you've got these seeds a lot more than if if it was a common species. This for this project, I have uh, there's a number of common species also included, and I'm sort of using them as the workhorse species that I can use for my more basic experiments to just try and you know I can yeah I can use more they're more expendable, um, and I have a different attitude towards them. Not that I don't appreciate them, but you know they're not. It's not the same as working with endangered species, definitely. Yeah. Which brings us to the emus, yeah. right? So here we are in northwestern New South Wales mm-hmm. at an emu farm. 
What's it like now being someone who's worked for quite some time on this plant to actually see all of those seeds that you collected going through the digestive tract of a large animal? Oh, it's pretty (laughs) nerve-wracking. But, I mean, I guess that's the point is science. You've got to take a few risks to, um, to be able to kind of investigate these things. The workers at Murumitaga Provenance Nursery, an Aboriginal-run nursery near where the seeds were collected, have been spending many hours sorting out the emu scat from the seeds. And Catherine Catalotti tells me she's just about to start the experiments to see what conditions the seeds need to germinate. And I'll do my best to keep you informed right here on Off Track about how those nodding G-bung trials go. Thanks also to Philip and Penny Henley from Emu Logic for speaking with me and letting me loose in the emu paddock with the recording gear, and to Catherine Catalotti, a technical officer with the Australian Plant Bank. That beautiful off-track episode was produced by Joanna Khan. So it's been a few years since this episode aired, and you're probably wondering, does the emu poo help pursunias? Well... Yes and no. Dr Nathan Emery is a scientific officer at the Australian Plant Bank and he said that while there wasn't any strikingly significant results from those emu poo experiments, it still helped understand the process required for pursuing your seeds to germinate. What we know now is that this process takes a long time naturally in the soil. It breaks down through wet and dry cycles, through the different seasonal uh, climactic conditions. And when it passes through an animal's stomach, such as a, an emu or, or another bird species, this potentially speeds up that process by starting the uh, weakening of the endocarp. Remember, the endocarp is that hard layer that surrounds the pasunia seed. Which protects the seed um, for a certain amount of time. And in order for germination to commence, this endocarp needs to break down suitably enough so that the seed has enough strength to be able to penetrate through the endocarp and germinate. So, yes, if a pasunia fruit passes through an emu, this digestive process does help to weaken the endocarp. But it's a bit more of an indirect effect that allows the germination to occur sooner. But Nathan says there are potentially other ways to fast-track the weakening of the endocarp. To a similar effect, but we don't quite have any data on this, potentially when a, when a fire comes through as well, that also helps to speed up that endocarp weakening. So if it's not quite emu poo or fire, how are Nathan and the team at the Australian Plant Bank currently germinating pasunia seeds? We allow that fruit to ferment and break down um, naturally over a period of a, a few weeks. Then they're briefly washed under a sterile solution and then immediately dried to stop them from germinating. And then when we're ready to germinate them in the lab, we will soak them for um, a few hours to overnight to to help weaken those endocarps and then we will crack them using um, a vise in the lab in order to extract the seeds. Without following this process, trying to crack the seed of a freshly dropped fruit can require up to 50 to 60 kilograms of force. 
they're slow growing plants, they're slow to reach um, reproductive maturity and you know that, that boils down to the whole sort of seed biology as well and um, you know trying to speed up that process has so many difficulties and so trying to pace ourselves I think gives us the best reward. Painstaking right? But Nathan and the team at the Australian Plant Bank are dedicated to conserving these pursuits and patience is key. And Nathan's been working on a particularly challenging one, Pasunia hirsuta. It has been one of the worst, almost difficult species we've had here at Plant Bank to propagate because we just weren't able to find any, any mature fruit. It seems practice and patience makes perfect because after waiting for mature fruits, Nathan and the team were not only then able to germinate the seeds, they propagated Persunia hirsuta for a trial translocation project. We were able to successfully grow on um, a couple of hundred plants which we have just planted out, back out into the field in the um, first ever translocation for that species. What an incredible feat. Now, if you're interested in further exploring the unique relationship between plants and animals, whether it's cassowaries in rainforests or native bees in Persunias, you might also like to listen to the Branch Out episode No Plants, No Animals or Bizarre Behaviour and Snotty Gobbles. And for more stories and sounds of Australian nature, you can listen to Off Track with Ann Jones on Radio National every Sunday or listen anytime wherever you get your podcasts. Branch Out is taking a short break, but don't forget to hit subscribe so you can keep discovering the surprising world of plants when the next season kicks off. And leave a five-star rating and a positive review if you like the show. It helps more people find us.